Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. These are difficult and shocking times. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Arsene DeLay and Amanda Payton back to the show. Amanda and Arsene have both been guests on this podcast previously, and they are good friends of mine. Arsene and I went to college together, and Amanda and I worked together on Trial and Error. There is familiarity, affection, and trust between us, which is why they were each willing to join me for this special episode. Amanda and Arsene are both black women, and they have generously agreed to offer up some of their personal thoughts and feelings about this painful, agonizing moment in our country. I am deeply honored that they are willing to share with me again here on my show and to do so at this acutely disorienting time. Though they are both in this episode, Amanda and Arsene will each have their own individual segment with a break in between. So let's start talking. Welcome back to the show, Amanda. Hi, Nick. Hi. I have said this in the introduction. I've said this to you multiple times off mic. It means a lot to me that you're willing to explore this conversation here. It's obviously a deeply painful moment in the country, and it's and it's a pain that I can't necessarily relate to on all levels that are... Mm-hmm that are most valid. And although I am aware in the most naive sense that a white male like myself has to be careful about asking my black friends how the hell they're doing, what do you think mm-hmm. about this? I, you're a friend of mine and Arsene is a friend of mine and I've just always processed things by talking and I know that I could learn some things by listening to you. And it means a lot to me that you were willing to try this out with me. Um, Yeah. And I want you to talk a little bit about your experience as we were just getting the text. Well, first of all, I can hear how nervous you are. Yeah. And I can (laughs) hear how much you don't want to say the wrong thing. And I want to say that I feel the exact same way. You know, my hand is shaking. I don't want to step over that. Mm -hmm. Um, I you know, you texted me yesterday and you asked me if I'd be willing to come on and speak about my experience. And I'll read my response. I thought about it for about five minutes and I said, hi, Nick. Thank you so much for reaching out. Hmm. This is a tough one. I want to speak out and share my experiences. That being said, I have a lot of complex feelings at the moment and a lot of complex emotions. This is extremely confusing for me being half white, half black and also in a position where I'm often the only Black person some of my friends and acquaintances know. I don't know at the moment when I'm speaking from a place of groundedness, not a word, but you know what I mean, (laughs) and when I'm speaking from a place of my own emotion. So, dot, 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 all this to say, I think I need time. And you totally respected that. Said, okay, totally. You know, you took that in, you let me have that, and we talked a little bit about your podcast and some other stuff. And then about... 20 minutes later, I'd say during this 20 minutes, I was just sitting with my, with my feelings and what was going on inside of me. And then again, out loud, I processed to you through this text. I said, you know what? I'm continuing to meditate on this. And I'm thinking maybe it's the time to just be honest with the complexity of how I'm feeling and work through some of it out loud with you. If I can't do that, how do I expect others to do it? I'm open to having a conversation for your podcast. Thank you for being patient with me around this. It feels so complicated. Yeah. 
and it is complicated. So thank you for I'm nervous yeah. to be here, you know? And I also don't want to step over the fact that I am privileged. I am privileged as a half-white cisgender female in a body that is acceptable by all standards. You know, my skin is light and I have some features that make both races able to see themselves in me. Hmm. As I said in the text, I'm often the only black person in the room. I realized only just this morning that growing up a lot, my white friends would say to me, Amanda, you're so white. Hmm. And they would say it as a compliment and I would take it as a compliment. Wow. But now I realize that what they were really saying is I feel comfortable around you, which is a compliment, but it leaves me just completely confused about who and what I am. And this time I'm battling with that as well. I've been able to be educated, you know? So I'm confused and in mourning and saddened and, and I feel guilty about the privilege that I have had and... I don't really know what the right way to do this is either, you know? Yeah. Well, I just so appreciate you um, sharing that and just being here, being present with me. Um, I've mentioned this on the show before. I may have mentioned this to you off mic. Uh, I was raised in a very white suburb of Omaha, Nebraska, I remember mm -hmm. when the first family, first black family moved into my neighborhood and, and subsequently our Catholic parish of that particular neighborhood. And, you know, I'm sure we could fit 500 or so people on a Sunday mass. And they were the only black family there. Um, I think they had two children. I was probably, I mean, the memory strikes me as having been around 10 years old, maybe eight. But I mean, that is just to say that I spent possibly eight to 10 years of my life not even anywhere around someone who was black. And mm -hmm. I think that it's impossible for me to divorce that from the present. I, I have since expanded my life and horizons in ways that I feel I just, and then of course, I just became aware that I'm telling you my fucking story. What is that about? No, and you, you know, know what? I think that there's room for all of this. I think all of this is so essential, Nick. Yeah. You know, I don't think we can cut any of it out. I think it's all so important. Even places that, that there are no black people, you know, the recent movement to like include more black stories in media and mm. in TV and film, you know, like that's important. I was... I was visiting with my boyfriend's family and, and he's from a town where there are not very many black people and the black people that are there are not from America. Very tiny town. And I remember we were watching some movie about, which movie was it? It was like the Harry Potter spinoff thing and the mistress of- Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yeah, the right. mistress of magic or whatever was black. And I realized me and her- we're the only black people, <laughs> you know? And then that's when I realized how important it is even in our industry. And, you know, I was yes. very, my parents tried to shelter me from racism. You know, my dad had racist friends. My dad was black and he had racist friends and he took those relationships to where they could go. And people saw him 
some of them said, oh, wow, I didn't know that black people were really people, too. And they changed their views. And some of them didn't change their views and just saw him and as an exception. Mm. And so being that that is where I am from, I feel like it's my responsibility to be a bridge, to be a bridge between black and white, to talk to to, to talk to the white people and talk to the black people and be a bridge, which is it's not it's not my responsibility. But if I'm able to shed light on things, then I would like to. You know, I've been able to have delicate conversations with people before because I can speak their language, you know, I can code switch to some extent. Do you feel, I mean, do you feel your presence differently in a group of predominantly black people or predominantly white people as a self-identity kind of thing? You kind of referenced earlier, you know, that you yeah, had white friends. But the truth is that like I'm grappling with that right now because growing up I went to mostly white schools. In fact, my elementary school was one of those schools that's like $135,000 a year, which my family couldn't afford, but they needed more black people and they needed Jewish people. So great, get half black, half Jewish kid in here. Wow, right. Um, so you got scholarships or whatever. Yeah, I went for free. Oh, and wow. so yeah. most of my friends were... That was how my high school was too, by the way. I mean, my high school yeah. was... I don't mean to cut you off, but I'm very familiar with that. And I have that experience as having been someone who, you know, knew that that was like, we needed to have at least some proportion of people right, here of diversity. acutely aware sure. of my differences. But because my family didn't discuss it openly because they were trying to shelter me and take care of me. I mean, side note, you know, like my grandparents weren't around really in my life. And, you know, my parents really wanted to shelter me from that. Like, oh, they don't, they don't like you because of your skin color. Like, how do you talk to a child about that? Which I know parents are grappling right now with. But because of that, I just kind of always felt like most kids, I didn't want to point out the differences between myself and others. Hmm. So I wanted to be the same. So if anybody did bring up my skin color difference, there's a feeling that I can feel right now. Like I can feel right now where like my skin feels like it's burning and my cheeks get hot and red. Wow. And that was a very familiar feeling to me as a kid. Wow. And so it was important for me socially to mix well and fit in with all groups and very quickly become a part of so that people wouldn't point and look at me differently. And now I'm grappling with the fact that that's racism mm. and that I had to overcompensate. And that part of that is like maybe why I do comedy now and how I've learned to like, I kind of like hurl myself at situations in life. And that maybe that's not so much my personality, but a coping mechanism that if I'm going to be the only black person at the party, I'll make everyone laugh and then they'll feel comfortable with me. Wow. But it's also tough because I don't, I see myself just as much in my mom who's white and Jewish, but that's not how the world sees me. And I was raised in kind of a bubble that is I am half my mom and I am half my dad. Right. And I remember the first time that I got, you know, pulled over driving while black. I wasn't even driving. I was with a boyfriend who was half black, half white. And we got pulled over and he shifted immediately into almost like militant subservience. Mm. And I remember I was scared and they asked us where we were coming from. And we were coming from an opera because we went to an arts high school. 
And I remember he said, we're coming from an opera. And I remember the police officer was like shocked and didn't quite believe us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we were fine. We weren't doing anything wrong. And not that that will save people. But um, I remember afterwards, like processing it back at my house with my family. And I remember my boyfriend at the time saying, yeah, because his dad was from the military and his dad had that talk with him that here's what we do. You are half white, but here's what we do if the cops pull you over. So, (sighs) and I didn't remember that until recently. So like, yes, this is bringing up past trauma stuff. I already knew this was happening. I'm, I'm not in shock about this at all. I heard stories of this my whole life. And I saw my dad, who was just the most powerful man, get scared when police would come around. I remember I was like mad at him and I said, I'm going to call the police on you. And he said, do you know what would happen to me if you called the police on me? And I didn't. I didn't know. And now I understand that. My gosh. Wow. That's an incredibly relatable and totally unrelatable moment, a fight between a father and a child and the child sort of lashing out with whatever they have at their fingertips. But it's something totally different in your world. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make it clear also, like, look, I don't speak for all black people. I right. don't speak no. for all half black, half white people. All I can do with you, Nick, is like try to kind of unwind what's going on for me in this moment and kind of get past my own fear to speak out. Because I think that part of my fear to speak out is me wanting to fit in with all groups. And so I'm not going to do that. You know, I've also been accused of not being black enough. So I don't even know what that means because I am what I am. And, you know, my parents did shelter me. They did. They did the best that they could. And now we're kind of learning that maybe we talk to our kids about what racism really is instead of stepping over it. Because I always knew something was up. You know, I, this is small, but I was this stupid TV show, The Hills. I used to watch it with my friends and it, they did a reboot and I recently watched it. This was like, you know, a couple months ago during the everyone shut in from COVID thing before George Floyd was killed, but after so many others were. And I was watching it and I was like, Oh my God, no, I couldn't watch it. I was like, no wonder, no wonder I never felt good enough. No wonder I thought, I thought in high school, like I wanted to be like these people. I was never going to be these people. You know, I stopped eating. I could, I got thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner trying to be like these people. I bought all the things that they bought. I spent all of my money and I didn't realize that it was because I was different. Hmm. You know, we as people, we, we want to fit in. That is survival, to have a tribe, to be in the center of our tribe. That is survival. That is a survival technique, having a family, you know? And my family was really pretty isolated to me, my mom and my dad, because my parents got away from a lot of the racist stuff that was happening in the I mean, we talked about this in, in my episode, yeah. but um, yeah. they took me away and they sheltered me. Which, and, and also, you know, I mean, you can hear me really grappling with this now. Sure. I mean, I just, I appreciate you doing free thought here. So please continue. Yeah. If they hadn't have done that, I don't know that I would have gone after my dreams hmm. because I wanted to 
be, you know, an actor. And at the time that I was growing up, you know, I turned on the TV, I didn't see any black leads of sitcoms or the things that I wanted to be doing, you know, the shows that I loved watching. So maybe if they did tell me about racism and how much harder it was going to be for me to accomplish my dreams, maybe I wouldn't have gone for them. I don't know. I don't know. I have a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. Are there any questions you wish a white person wouldn't ask? or that you're tired of hearing, or that you have gotten in certain areas and you just roll your eyes? Like, is there a common through line to certain things that represents the naivete of a white person around you? (laughs) That is a a complex question because there are questions that... Okay, I'll share this. When this was first starting, a friend of mine reached out and said, how are you? It was about two days after George Floyd died. This is a white friend of mine just reaching out to say, how am I? And I was so touched by that. I was so touched by that. And at the same time, I felt that skin burning thing, which is my skin is a liability. Everyone's looking at me as to how I'm going to react, which is another reason, by the way, like knee jerk reaction, why I didn't want to speak at first on this podcast, because it's like, don't look at me. Hmm. Um, which is also just like a subtle racism issue. But um, I responded to her a long, 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 heartfelt response and thanked her. Now, today, I've gotten so many people asking me how I am. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Do I cut and copy and paste oh that? Oh, gosh, right. Do I... Um, <laughs> Do I, what do I, what do I do? Uh, so sometimes I'm like, I'm <laughs> but okay. Are you taking How care are of you? them or are they taking care of you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but I, but I, but it's out of a beautiful place. And then I've had other friends just be like, hey, you want to come over and like swim in my pool and like forget about all this? And like, yeah, part of me does and part of me doesn't. And it's just so complex. So I just don't think I can answer that with a cut and dry. Sure. And I know that different people, different people are going to have different views on that. But again, I'm raised by a father who was friends with racist people and was trying to change people one at a time. And I know that I've changed people. I, my best friend growing up, it came from a, she was a first generation um, here in America from a different country. And I don't want to throw anyone under the bus at all, but um, in, and in this other country, wow, this is crazy. She just texted me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, wow. And, that's wild. and growing up, like her family had a, she just said, how are you doing? <laughs> wow. That's um, amazing. But we've, been, we've been in contact about this. Um, Still though. Growing up, her family said, you know, you can't marry a black person. You can't marry a Persian person. Mm. But black would be worse. You can't marry a Hispanic person. And they didn't love that she was bringing me home as a friend, but they started to love me and I learned a little bit of their language and uh, they started calling me their chocolate girl. Um, And now, I mean, that story is like a a whole nother like incredible story how like she's really taking it upon herself to like educate herself. You know, she's reading before George Floyd died, like a couple, a couple days before and before all of the protests, she ordered the book White Fragility and started reading it and started talking to me about it. 
Wow. Um, and her mom also told her that if she wanted to marry someone different, yeah, it would be okay um, mm-hmm. on Mother's Day. But um, I'm keeping this all, you know, I don't want to like point out who she, who she is. Sure, I, I have talked to her about talking don't. about it publicly. But um, I mean, I'm so incredibly proud of that. And also it makes me see that I don't have to cut out everybody who says things that are ignorant. I don't have to cut out everybody who comes from a place where they just don't know. And I am okay with answering questions. I also am a strong woman and can say uh, I'm not comfortable right now. And that's my responsibility to learn how to do that. I want to ask one question about the how are you doing question. Mm -hmm. So in a totally separate context, I find those questions annoying, just totally separate from everything else, right? Because one of Mm -hmm. the things about that is you're having to do so much work on your end to try to understand what they want to hear. Where are they coming from? This is just in a sense of like my feeling of just a kind of common texting decency. And, you know, I know in this case, like we can assume why they're saying that, but do you see their lack of follow-up in sort of clarifying why they're, or what's behind or how they're feeling or giving you an opportunity, just giving you more information about the question. Is that annoying? I'm an eternal optimist and this is really trying me, but I still am. You know, like I was texting with you earlier and saying like, it's beautiful to me that we are going back and forth and trying to figure out the right way to have this conversation. And both of us really just want to make this right. And we think that we can somehow make a difference because if one person hears a conversation between a black person and a white person, then maybe they can know that it's possible and that we can just have conversation. I mean, we, Yeah. but so I see it as like, they genuinely want to know how I'm doing, even if they don't know what else to ask. Mm. And a lot of my friends who are asking me how I'm doing have been checking in this whole time with COVID to see how I'm doing. Right. And they just being like, how are you doing? Like my friend who just texted me right now, who I was talking about my childhood best, but she texts me every couple of days. How are you doing? Right. Just because, you know, we're checking in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, right. So it's, it kind of depends on who it's coming from. Is part yes. Of it, my too. knee jerk though, as a person is not to be annoyed. Yeah. Well, that's a healthy I can, way of I living. like can rile myself up into annoyance or I can let other people rile <laughs> me up into annoyance, but my knee jerk is not to be Annoyed, and I and I can also see various sides. I mean, even with this like protesting and looting stuff, you know, I see that white people are looting. I see that black people are looting. I see why. I know that like if I were organizing it, I would do peaceful protests. I also see why people feel the need to smash shit, smash shit. Look, after Martin Luther King was shot, there was I think something like forty-seven million dollars worth of damage. And I think I read 110 cities were protesting and rioting. And this was in, what, 1968? Mm-hmm. I mean, so long ago. And on the sixth day, it took six days. And on the sixth day, the Civil Rights Act of 1968 was passed. So who am I to say, this isn't going to work. This isn't how we do this. Here's how you need to do this. Because we just don't know, you know? Right. Well, there are a lot of, um, you know, catch for, like chanting slogans that are, are that are things like uh, protest works only if the person you're protesting against has a conscience. 
Yeah, and, that's you know, non really or it's nonviolent. Even having this conversation with you, who's listening? Probably people who are open to listening. You right. know, when I post stuff on my social media, who's following me? People who are following a black person. Yeah. You know, I don't right. That's tough. That's tough. But that's why I mean I spoke about it in my in my interview with you, my dad used to invite in the Jehovah's Witnesses to have debates. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. You know, that's the family I'm coming from. Okay, so I have another question. When someone says all lives matter to you or puts it into your Instagram or you see it in somebody mm -hmm. else's Instagram or something like mm -hmm. that, what does that mean to you? How does it land with you emotionally? And can you help me have context to yes. either the um, spectrum of offense or pain that that lands in? Well, first of all, I think it's so sad that that's a counter argument to Black Lives Matter. Because we're not arguing, no one is arguing that certain lives don't matter. That's not a part of the conversation. But it's become, okay, so like a Confederate flag is just a flag. It's just a piece of fabric. But if I'm walking down the street in a neighborhood that I don't know, and I see Confederate flags in all of the windows, then I'm not going to feel safe. I'm, I know what that means. And so All Lives Matter has become a counter argument for Black Lives Matter. You know, if I break my foot and I go to the doctor and say, I have a broken foot. And the doctor says, oh, go back home. All feet matter. Hmm. No one is arguing that other lives don't matter, but we just watched a black man murdered and nobody cared. You know, even before that, I mean, even before that, Ahmaud Arbery, we watched, we watched him murdered. Mm. We watched it. It was a lynching and we saw it happen. And the only reason that anyone was held accountable was because people lost it on social media. Mm -hmm. So that's not part of the conversation right now. And it's, and it's just so sad to me that that's a counter argument. Right. That it's become that because it shouldn't be, because it should just be able to be a statement. Right. Can you help me understand, this is a new question, can you help me understand the preference level and acceptability level of terms like black, person of color, and African-American? Now, I understand the person of color sticks out here because person of color is a very general term that represents people of all non-white backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But this is something that I find myself doing sometimes is like, I know it's okay to say this is a black person. I also know it's okay to say this is an African-American person. And sometimes I'm like, I, I'm pleading total ignorance. I don't know if I'm being hurtful. I yeah. don't know. So I'm not a social scientist. Yeah. And all I can speak to is how these things make me feel. And the, the, the fact is that I'm also coming from a place of this being colored by me feeling very uncomfortable when anyone pointed me out is different in any way. Right now, what I'm understanding is that it's important to identify for me, myself as black. And in part, that's like a reclamation for me of being able to stand up, even if it makes me uncomfortable and identify as something other than. And that's scary for me because, you know, my dad is dead and I only have my mom and she's white. So when I stand up and say I'm black, 
Mm. There's a piece of me that feels really, really alone. Wow. And I have black friends and I have white friends and we haven't up until this point really had to have these conversations and I've steered clear of them. So that's on me. So I don't know, Nick. I mean, I so appreciate you allowing me to ask that question. I feel like a child. I mean, so do I. And technically I I am, uh, I would say, all of the above. I would say I am an African-American. I would say I am a a black woman and also a woman of color. Um, I'm also just as white, but I'm not seen as that. Right. And that's when I'm also starting to uh, understand that if I'm walking up to a police officer at night in a dark alley with my hands in my pockets. Right. I'm then not half white, half black. I'm then a black woman walking up to them as a suspect with suspect behavior. Right. And those definitions go back to the beginning of this country. Right. I mean, what? It was an octoroon. So if you're one eighth black, then you're a slave. You're all black. Right. When I check boxes, I usually check both and get really offended if I have to choose one. That is really interesting. And that is because I don't know what to write. Wow. I think in like college, I started checking black when I learned about, I read the play The Octoroon. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's white privilege right there. That's some of the white privilege stuff. You don't have yeah. to, you're not forced to, you know. But that also didn't feel like suffering hmm. to me at the time. And now I'm having to do a reckoning, but so are you. We all are. Yeah. Or I guess, no, I guess the difference is that I'm working this out as we speak. Yeah. So I don't know. And, and, and listen, me if I, I said yes me. to something that I'm not entirely sure I understood. So keep going. <laughs> I mean, you, we're, this, we're human. Yeah. We're human. And I think that that's the way out of this. If there is a way out of this or through it, that's better. The way through it. I stand by that. I'm also, I've been using this for a long time. I'm palatable. I'm palatable to the people who have never even seen a black person before. I am palatable, which is why I can be a love interest to a white man. And so why I can be on a show and be a love interest to you. That's how, how we met each other. And it's so beautiful that, that people, young black women can turn on the TV and see that. And I'm so grateful for that. But I also can't step over the fact that it's a lot more palatable. Yeah. And I could be on these commercials, you know, I can do commercials too, which are played all over the world. Red states, blue states, racist states, you know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I'm learning now that it's not racist states and non-racist states. It's such a, it's not black and white like that, no pun intended. But um, I'm palatable. Yeah. I played two doctors this year. That's incredible. I never saw any doctors, any black yeah, right. doctors on TV. No scientists. Maybe in like farces and only in black-centric shows that were written by and for black people only. All right, Amanda, we're getting towards the end, so I just kind of want to ask you, is there anything that's in your head that you feel like you want to express? Is there something floating around that maybe it's related yeah, to something actually, earlier? Yeah, okay. I do, I do. I want to express that I think a lot of people don't know where to start. 
And I think that starting looks different for for everyone. And some people are jumping into these like 30-day courses on like how to be more race aware. And some people are jumping out and protesting and not everyone's place. And I've heard this so many times and it's so true. Not everyone's place is on the front lines. Some people's places doing other things. Sometimes your place is just like silently taking this all in. And then just like when you're at Thanksgiving with your racist uncle and he says something racist, just like calling that out. You know, that might be a place for somebody. There's also places to donate to, you know, there's, I know of a handful, but you do your own research, but there's like the George Floyd Memorial Fund, which is to support his specific family. There's Minnesota Freedom Fund, and that's a nonprofit that pays criminal bail and immigration funds for the people who have been arrested while protesting. There's Black Visions Collective, and that's for, you know, Black, trans, and queer. It's a Black, trans, and queer-led organization. There's there's Fair Fight. There's Reclaim the Balk. There's NAACP. You know, so many. And you can do your own research on what you believe in, but there are just, if you're scared to protest, you don't want to protest, whatever, there's a place for everyone in this, even if it's just teaching your kids, you know, what racism is. There's a place for all of us. And also just the shame around past actions and past not knowing. Like, we don't know what we don't know until we know it. So I'm not, like, out there unfriending everybody unless they're attacking me. I want to spread knowledge as much as possible. And I can only speak for myself in saying that, like, if you're ignorant of something, okay. Okay. Learn about it. And vote. And vote. Yeah. Make phone calls. If all you can do right now is post something on social media, if that's really, really scary for you because you're going to lose a ton of followers if you come out in support of Black Lives Matter, then yay. But don't stay silent. And that's why I can't say don't stay silent and not agree to talk on a podcast. Come on. Well, Amanda, I mean, I just so appreciate this. I just, I, um, I just appreciate it very much. And I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing um, so many thoughts, personal and um, and general, about this issue. And uh, it just it just means a lot. And I and I love you. And I want to say you thanks. Love you too, Nick. Thanks. Yeah. So so happy our our paths crossed and that we've stayed in touch. And yeah, it's beautiful. Okay. We'll take a break here and we'll be back with Arsene. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all.
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the second segment of this special episode of God and Other Delicacies. On the phone with me now, as I referenced at the top of the show, is my dear friend and previous guest on the podcast, Arsene DeLay. As with Amanda, I see it as a great gift and honor that Arsene is willing to spend the time and energy here with me now to share about some of the thoughts and emotions she is experiencing during this painful moment. And I am grateful I get to listen. Okay, Arsene, welcome back to the show. Hi, Nikki. Hi. (laughs) I, I have told you this off mic. I said the same stuff to Amanda, and I just mean it with all my heart. I really appreciate that you're taking the time to have a conversation with me now to share with this stuff. It uh, is the way I connect. It's just the way that I process and I'm that you're generous and open enough to want to do this recorded and to put it out is really, really meaningful to me. And I just know you have so much to share about this. And I, I appreciate that you're willing to go there. I know that this is not an easy thing to ask. I know that it's something that a white male like myself has to be careful asking people. I know you and I are dear friends. That's why it's okay. But you know, I just wanted to say this stuff that it means a lot. Well, you know, of course. Well, you know, I mean, for you and I, we're tight. And of course, for you. But at the same time, at some point, a conversation is going to have to be had in order to move forward. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Hmm. Well, Arsene, it's, it's hard to know where to start. I think I just want to ask you right out of the gate, are there any questions? And I know that you have told me already, you know, I've talked to you about some of the questions that I might ask today. You're open with me. You've been very clear about that. At the same time, what kind of questions do you really not want to have to answer right now? It doesn't mean you won't answer them, but what questions are you just sick and tired of answering? What questions are offensive to be asked by a white person in particular, but just anybody at this moment in time? Do you have any way you want to speak to that? Is that an interesting thing for you to talk about to start? Um, For the most part, I don't. It really depends on the question. I can't. There's not one that comes to mind. Usually, the question is the litmus test. A person's question is going to tell me where they are in their journey of knowledge mm-hmm. and what their intentions are. So, you know, if you ask me a question, I can tell if you're genuinely seeking to learn something or if you're just trying to fortify your own ideas and your beliefs. And, and so that's, it's after the question is asked that I'll figure out, I'm like, oh God, or, or decide whether or not I'm going to answer or just walk away at this point. <laughs> the one that I walk away, can I touch your hair? Mm. No. <laughs> Stop asking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's just start with this one. Would you mind talking about some of your memories of the racist experiences you've had in your life and specifically experiences where the N-word has been used in your presence or been used like directly at you? (laughs) Um, So you want me to start from the beginning or do you want me to go backwards? You know, whichever one feels like (laughs) the right way for you to start. I mean, honestly, like to me, this question is, 
I, as I told you off mic, I, I almost am ashamed I've never asked you this question. And it's a moment like this that people like me, this is a white privilege position, right? I don't have to ask you this. I haven't thought to ask you this because I haven't had to think to ask you this. You know, you wouldn't be my friend if you didn't trust me as a person, but still, I'm asking you this now because I just, it's going to make me sad to hear it, but I also, it's a way that I can learn about my friend's experiences in life. And so however you want to start it, wherever you want to go with it. Um, let me think. Um, it's, uh, um, <laughs> the times that I've been called the N word. I mean, the first time was probably when I was, uh, when I was five and then quite a few times in, uh, in elementary school and actually even before that in, uh, in preschool, in elementary school. Uh, the kids, um, kids calling you this? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, and actually it was often one of the reasons that I constantly was in trouble for fighting oh, go for because that. They would, yeah, they would, they would call me that. And then I'd knock them in their damn face. My mom was like, you just, you can't do that when people are calling you names. And I'm like, but it feels so good. Cause it feels like, like justice has been served. But I mean, at the same time I was a kid, you know, and you know, anger is one of the first things that children learn. It's, it's one of the oldest emotions that, that we experience. We get angry when we don't get what we want or angry when things are wrong or angry when we're just disenfranchised. So I alleviated that anger with my fist because I didn't have the vocabulary and the words to deal with it at the time. Wow. I mean, but the fact that you, that it's on you to try to figure out how to evolve yourself past that is unfair to say the least. Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, look, this is, it, it was necessary because you know, as you get older, the more you start hitting people and stuff, then, you know, the more doors that close on you and the more that you're labeled. Well, it, it doesn't matter. You don't even have to, you don't even have to use your fist to be labeled as an angry black woman. To be a black woman in America mm. is an exercise in anger management. <laughs> it literally is. But what does or what I've done, because I, I have no... Well, I'm, I'm one person and I speak for myself only, but yes, I have, I have been angry. I've been angry my whole life and rage is a very powerful motivator, but there's much beauty that can come from it. If you uh, learn to channel it, like if you learn, if you learn to work through it in productive manners and stuff. So, I mean, acting school was major therapy and Definitely being able to work out a lot of it on stage has been a huge help. Mm. Whether it was through music or through through acting. Not to digress too much, but yes, in, in middle school, in elementary school, in high school, oh my God, in high school, I, you know, I usually mind my P's and Q's because I was in Great Falls, Montana, and um, I'll never forget, actually. I was just minding my own business in class, doing my work, and one of the other students sends me a calculator of his friend, this dude named Aaron. I can't remember his last name. He's probably lucky about that. Hmm. But he 
typed out. It was one of those like TI-85 calculators or right, something, or right. one of the ones, one of the ones that you could actually, like, I guess it was our first way to text message in class. But he wrote that our fan is the daughter of a holy nigger bitch. And I didn't, like, I wasn't, I didn't know this dude. I didn't. And he was a football player. And I, I was dumbfounded because I'm like, where the fuck did this come from? But, Whoa. but he chose in that moment to disenfranchise me for whatever reason. And I was so upset that when I got out of class, you know, I had another friend who ran into me in the hallway and see, we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a lot of students of color, period, let alone a lot of black students. There was a handful of us, but we were all military kids. We were all there because our parents were stationed at the air, at the missile base there. And one of my girlfriends, she saw my face and she was like, what's up? And I told her what happened and she got pissed. And then she went and told my buddies, Tony and Reggie. Now, Tony and Reggie were not ones to be messed with. Tony and Reggie's, Reggie were gang members. Hmm. And Tony and Reggie loved me dearly. Like we kind of, we all looked out for each other. We were a little crew, you know. Tony and Reggie got word of that. And at lunchtime, Tony and Reggie dragged Aaron's ass to me in the for, in the commons area and made him get on his knees and apologize. Wow. Did he apologize? Did he whimper? Oh, what, of course. You know? Of course, because when you when you bust the jaw of a bully, of course they're going to apologize because now they've met their match. Hmm. You know, and those are things and tactics that I learned very, very early on. When I talk about being constantly being in fights and stuff in school and being in the military, what do they call it? Military brat. You learn very, very quickly as the new person in a school system. People try you. I've always said, like, maybe that's just human nature because all of a sudden somebody who is unfamiliar comes around. So they try to figure out whether you're going to fit in the pecking order. Right. I mean, watch one of those coming of age high school movies and you're the new girl and the mean girls come. And like, by the time I was sixth grade, I already knew how to strategize. I already knew that I had to take out the leader. Hmm. I knew that I had to knock a leader in the face, Whoa. pound her face in a bit, because then after that happened, nobody would mess with me. No one else would leave me alone. And I was perfectly fine with that because, you know, I was an only child and I was constantly the new girl. So I knew how to keep my own company very well. It was perfectly fine in that. Wow. So you would find a way to, it wouldn't be like you're initiating the fight, but because no, it's no, 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 I would initiate. Coming, they're kind of coming to you. And if they start treating you poorly, if they start being, if they start calling you names, if they start, kind of terrorizing you, you'd oh, figure out the inevitable. person, you'd figure out the person who you needed to bust up and then you'd go bust up that person and then it would stop and it would be. Yes. The terrorizing was inevitable. Like they'd come and test you. So they'd come and get in your face and like chest bump you. Jeez. And, you know, and I was only, I was only five foot one. I was a little sprout. So because I was little, they thought they could push me around. But that's the thing, it, 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 you know, but that, that's the beautiful thing about constantly getting underestimated. 
was it almost always a white person? I mean, are you referring kind of to- Oh, absolutely. It's always white, the white kids. And then you kind of gravitate towards the people, you know, or the people where you're accepted. Is it almost always, I mean, I suppose it's interracial. There's some people that are white um, that are your friends and then there's most people that aren't, you know, but it's at least the, at least the people that were terrorizing you were white is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, I was the, I was the only black person in my graduating class. There was my other girlfriends. One was Vietnamese and one was half Vietnamese and half white. Mm. Yeah. In our particular class. So yeah, these were always white girls who started this. And so no, I'd have to, I'd have to knock them in the face and, uh, you know, get a couple of punches in, box their ears, and then they, then they usually left me alone for the most part. Wow! But there, that was then. There was a high school. Um, sure, there was times in college, of course. And so, I mean, you mean like somebody on campus? I mean, this is when I know you. So, someone on campus, or you're at a party, or what? Is this like sideways comments, or are people saying it directly to your face? Um, usually, it was sideways comments that I overheard. Mm. It was often, yeah, they're, they're sideways. It's like, oh, the, the naked girl in the, the theater program or whatever. Yeah, wow. I've, I've heard all those. By this time, by this time, it's like, look, black people being called the N-word is nothing new. All of us, it's pretty much happened to all of us. I would be hard-pressed to know anyone who has not had that experience. Hmm. And I highly doubt that it even exists amongst uh, my brethren of mixed race, too. Hmm. So that's the case. And that's just that instance that doesn't go for the microaggressions that happen. The times where I went, I was going shopping for school clothes with my parents and we would be followed. They would tail my father and I in the store when I'm like, I just want to get a pair of pants. Wow. Or the times that I was accused of stealing when we would go into one of those cheap jewelry stores because we were in there trying to figure out what pair of earrings we wanted or something. Yeah, you're trying them on or something like that. Right. So those were when I was, you know, underage. And I mean, microaggressions, I mean, I still experience them to this day, you know, because drunk white women really have uh, no filter at times. And they say some really foolish shit. Hmm. I'm just I'm trying to, there's so, there's so many. There's oh so many. Yeah, I mean, look, I want you to tell me whatever you want to tell me. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, honestly, that it's not, it doesn't make me happy to hear this. I mean, this makes me feel sick to my stomach, but I want to hear it because I want to understand better just how often this happens to you day in and day out. You know, you referenced this a little bit on, you, you talked about microaggressions on our show together you talked about some of these things. That wasn't the arc of the show, so you didn't, you know, you didn't go down a road of this, and I didn't think to ask you to go down that road. But now I want you to go down this road so that I learn a little bit more about just how many times you have to put up with this stuff. Oh, I mean, everything from, you know, I, I, always, I always say, hell hath no fury like an inconvenienced white man or white woman, especially in middle age. You know, I work in the music slash service industry. I'm a musician. I work often in venues or in restaurants. And so I often, when I'm there for my gig, 
that whole atmosphere is a team. You know, I consider the bartenders, the waiters, the cooks, and my fellow musicians, they're my teammates because we're there to entertain and to provide a good experience. But when you have this grotesque sense of entitlement that comes in the door and they come in there acting in ways that they would probably never act in front of people they respected. Mm. And then when I call them out in particular, like if somebody's acting completely out of order in the midst of one of my shows and I call them out, the response is usually extra ruthless. They get super upset. And then, of course, when I set them straight, then I get accused of attacking them. Hmm. When, in all honesty, I already knew that that was going to be the response. It's very much like like uh, your girl in Central Park. Mm-hmm. Who are they, what are they calling her? Central Park Karen now? Yeah. Like, the thing is, we've seen that time and time and time again. Of course, I've definitely been threatened to have cops called on me. I'm like, go ahead. Please do. I mean, at least here in New Orleans, because I have connections here. And first off, they're also not going to come for that kind of stuff because that's ridiculous. Is the police force in New Orleans more racially balanced? I would say that like balanced is probably not the word to use. I mean, New Orleans Police Department has its they have their problems and we've still had issue with many of them because there's just, there's a lot of corruption on police forces in general and definitely New Orleans police force. I mean, it's been federally investigated twice, but I will say this. We do have a police force that the rest of the country could learn a couple of lessons from because this is the police force that deals with drunk fools all throughout the carnival season. That's interesting, right. They have a lot of experience. Right, so New Orleans police are actually rock stars when it comes to dealing with crowd control because crowds are our business. They know how to deal with them. They know how to deal with them on Bourbon Street. They know how to deal with them all over the place because there's so much entertainment. There's so many festivals. And carnival is a big, massive crowd of drunkenness often. And the thing is, is that the cops know how to be patient with unruly, with unruly heathens. Like right now, there are police forces in other cities that are using excessive force that are showing up to protests in riot gear. Like when you show up dressed for war, there probably is going to be a battle. Mm -hmm. And this is not just crowd control for parties because I've been protesting for a long time. I go to protests. I go to protests. When we had the Confederate statues taken down back in 2017, I think, I went to all of those. You want to talk about racial tension, but the New Orleans uh, Police Department was there to keep the peace, and that's exactly what they did. Were they in riot gear? Absolutely not. I've never seen them in riot gear at a protest. Mm. They're not threatened by people who are just angry. That's New Orleans Police Department. That's not state troopers, and that's definitely not Baton Rouge, because Baton Rouge is very problematic. And there's also a certain nod to the cops in there who have ties to white supremacist groups. Mm. 
to the little incel groups and stuff, there are people embedded in in those forces. And, you know, people will be dumbfounded to think that I'm lying. And I'm not. It's actually very, very true. And it's... Well, I think we're seeing that now. There's no doubt it's about been it. something we're all that's long now. been known. Yeah. Yes. It's been known for a very long time and it has been very, very well documented. So whenever somebody gets outed because of their oppressive record, I'm not even remotely surprised. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Please help me understand. What does it make you feel or how do you respond when you either see someone write or you hear someone say, all lives matter? Uh, Okay. So... I feel like there's a major disconnect going on here in this. All lives matter. That should be the standard, right? All of our lives should matter. All of our lives should hold value, correct? Yeah. Okay. Now, the problem that I see time and time again, especially now, is that people are saying all lives matter in response to when someone says black lives matter. When in actuality, they should be shutting the fuck up and listening. When somebody says black lives matter, you need to ask yourself, why are they saying that? And look, we are over here screaming that black lives matter because right now black lives don't matter. Because right now, if a white man went into a convenience store and used a counterfeit 20 that he may or may not have known was the case. We don't know that. We can't ask that question of George Floyd because he's dead. Mm -hmm. But this is actually something that's fairly common. And I know this because of the industry that I work in. People will, people float counterfeit 10s and 20s. Sometimes they don't even know that they're actually doing it. But they don't end up dead from somebody putting their knee on their neck. Mm-hmm. Losing your life over a piece of counterfeit money is unacceptable. But yet, this officer felt that it was okay to do that, even though the officer knew George Floyd because they both worked at the same nightclub. They both worked security at the same nightclub. I know, I saw that. So, you know, all right. Let me. I'm, I'm trying. I'm gonna try and go back to the generalities. But when when you respond, all lives matter. To someone who is crying out for justice, you are minimizing their pain, their anguish, their frustration. You're not listening. And that's the biggest thing that I see happening right now. No one is listening. Specifically, white people are not listening. They always have to have something to say in response to somebody expressing their pain. And that's why this is not going to change because you're not listening. When somebody says Black Lives Matter, it's because what's going on is that we are being suppressed. We're being suppressed. No, we're not even just being suppressed. We're being killed out here. Mm. We are dying. Mm -hmm. When we talk about white privilege and the poor white guy is like, well, I didn't grow up privileged. I grew up poor and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, noted. Great. 
congratulations, so did I. But I'm still not afforded the same benefits of the doubt that you are. Mm-hmm. I have two girlfriends who are a couple. One's white, one is black. They both got arrested for possession of marijuana or something. It was possession of, of some drug or whatever. White girl got two days. Black girl got three or four months. Hmm. Two people roughly around the same age and not the same sentence. Arrested together. Arrested together, yes. I mean, same infraction. Yes. And it was the white girl who had the, it was the white girl who had, it was in her purse. But they both got arrested. It's hearing this stuff, it's like, I know it's true. But I think, you know, obviously, again, this is white privilege too, is that you, as a white person, have a luxury of just going like, oh, I don't want that to be true, so I'm going to act like it isn't true. Right. But it's like, no, it is true. And it is so brutal to keep seeing how ubiquitous it is when you are finally looking at it, how often this is occurring and how for how long. I mean, obviously, again, all these things I know, I'm aware that, you know, you can talk about knowing certain things, but not really, but not really seeing them because you don't have to see them. Exactly. Because you don't have to see them. And that's the thing. The ability to say, I just can't believe that would be true because, because it just couldn't be. I'm going to ignore it. or I'm going to walk away from this. That's a privilege that I don't have. Yeah, that's right. I don't have the privilege of just pretending that it's not true because that is me. You know, when you go, like, prime example, when I went to um, pick out my protective case on my phone, every time, actually, every time I go to pick out a protective case on my phone, I specifically choose a bright color. Not because I like bright colors or anything like that. You want to know why I do oh it? Oh, my God. Yeah, okay, keep going, but I think I, I know what you're about to say. pick a bright color because a cop is less likely to think that I'm going for a gun if it's brightly colored than that if it's black. gave me the chills as I put that thought together as you were fucking telling me that. Wow. Right. That's the privilege. Like, when when my white bandmates or something, if we get pulled over by the cops. And to be honest with you, when I'm, I mean, I'm in the South and when we, when we're driving through Mississippi and Alabama, I, I prefer to sit in the back because if we get pulled over, they'll get talked to in a different manner. I get reamed. Hmm. Or my ex, we had gotten pulled over a couple of times and he was driving, and it's like, he can afford to be combative. I don't do that. I have minimized myself so many times in those situations, even when I wasn't even in the wrong. When I was in grad school, I got pulled over by, um, this was in California, I got pulled over by a cop because he claimed that I didn't stop at the stop sign. I was actually in grad school and I was going, I was running home to grab some food for lunch. He pulls me over and I was like, okay, what's, what's up? And he's like, well, you didn't stop at the stop sign. And I looked at him. I said, 
I did. I my car stopped and it jerked back and then I went. He said, well, you didn't count for three seconds. And he wrote me a ticket. Wow. I can't, you know, I mean, I've gotten some tickets before Arsene, but I've gotten out a lot of them, you know. And I'm sure the rate that, you know, this is not uh, a surprise, but if you could factor in these types of things into a statistic, I'm sure it's an astronomical difference between the white people getting out of tickets with warnings and black people getting tickets are worse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, thank you for sharing that with me. Really hit me. It's amazing how the type of anecdote, something about your cell phone, making sure it's like, you know, bright orange or bright pink or bright yellow or whatever. That really, it's just, it hits home because it makes so much sense. Uh, and because we've heard the stories before. Someone reaching for their phone and getting shot. There was that dude in the backyard. Yep. I'm sorry that I don't remember his name right now, but that, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to keep two years ago. But, well, but it's hard to keep up. I mean, when I heard when I heard about George Floyd, I was like, "What is this, Eric Gardner 2.0? Like, are we back here again?" Mm. I mean, Eric Gardner. It was for selling a Lucy cigarette. Mm-hmm. Man, Arsene, thanks for talking about this. And the, the reason that I get so, the reason that we're at this point now and the reason that why, well, there's many reasons. I'm going to speak for myself. The reason why I get so fucking mad about this is because any of them could have been any person in my family and it could have been me. Mm -hmm. Walter Scott, military veteran. He had a, a light out in his taillight shot on the way to run an errand. That could have been my father. Mm. He was the same age as him. Gave his life to this country. Shot. Every man in my family. So, and that's the other thing. When people sit there and say, well, taking a knee is disrespecting the flag. Man, fuck you. Because my family fought the same goddamn wars as your family veterans too. And for what? For a country that can't even treat them as human beings? That can't give them the same equal rights? That decides to redline us? I mean, I'm thinking back at the times we were trying to um, find a house, and the minute they saw my dad, the uh, offer wouldn't all of a sudden go through, or they mm. changed their mind. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know about these things, you know? You read about these things, but... Unless you make them personal, you don't feel them. And the thing is, is that every black person you know has lived them. Mm -hmm. Every last one of them. Arsene, um, we're at that point where I just want to ask you if there's anything else you want to express or if there's anything that you know, you want to keep saying about that subject or if there's any final thoughts you want to have and go out on? Um... Sure. You know, the thing is, I, I know this was a hard, this is a hard episode for you to listen to, hmm. but it's real. It's honest. And I hope that people really take a listen. 
And I hope that people believe it. It is my truth. And I hope people take a second to just ponder what kind of awesome stuff could come out of this if people actually decided to change and further their educations. What if things actually changed for once? Because if you look at Black people as a whole, you know, a lot of people are like, I can't believe this would happen. And it's like, why? Because I don't walk around wanting to rage all the time. The thing is, is that so many of us cope with this and still thrive, even in the shittiest of conditions and situations. And I go always go back to the whole yard analogy. It's like, you know, we are very, very powerful and very, very strong seeds. And we flourish even in the shittiest of soil. But man, what a gorgeous yard it would be mm. if you just gave us a little bit of water and some fertilizer, man. A little bit of compost. It's like, what would happen if we actually nurtured? What would happen if we can get to a point where we have to stop living this collective trauma and we could actually heal the generational trauma and the current traumas that we go through. Because the thing is, is that all of men and women who have lost their lives, especially at the, at the hands of the police, you are killing our greatest investments. These are people who, who have the potential to do amazing things. Hmm. It's really um, powerful stuff. And I just, I've got chills and I appreciate it so much. Like I've told you, I just really appreciate you being willing and so generous to just share this stuff with me. Well, thank you for listening. And thank you for using your platform to ask these tough questions because in all honesty, nothing is ever going to change until people actually make the choice to engage. There's plenty of people who won't. And that's been the issue. You know, a lot of people are, so we're at the phase in this where a lot of people are opting out. You know, you have people who don't know any better and you have racists being outed on social media, people being dragged and shamed because because they are stuck in their ways and they refuse to actually listen to things. And so, especially until white folks really start to listen and then do their part, then this country's original sin will never be forgiven. Mm. You know, and black folks and black folks' allies do. They've been fighting. They've been talking. They've been asking the questions. That's why we're at, we are where we are. We've been taking the knee, but that wasn't acceptable because it was an inconvenience. But all of a sudden now, because people's shit is burning, then all of a sudden the ears are open. So, and we've been here before. We've been to this place before. But I've also, my thoughts on it is, I don't, I do not have faith. I don't have faith that things will change but I can always hope that I'll be proven wrong. Hmm. I always hope that I'm proven wrong in that. I don't have the faith because my heart's been broken too many damn times. Yeah. 
powerful to hear you say this stuff. Thanks a lot. This is really great. Thanks, Nikki. And I love you, Arsene. I love you too, man. I love you too, bro. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, man. Jeez. I'm like, I still love you regardless of the world burning. You know that. <laughs> I know that. I know. God, boy, do I know it. You wouldn't be here if you if you didn't. <laughs> All right. Um, well, you and I are going to chat after I say goodbye, but I got to say goodbye to the show. All right, darling. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>